Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, 2 Samuel chapter 8. The book of 2 Samuel gives us a good illustration of the various kinds of literature and their purposes that the several anonymous writers and editors wove together in order to reach a coherent story, especially concerning the period of Israel's history when they were ruled by kings. Now, of course, the overriding reality that God inspired and invisibly directed the minds and hands of these authors is why some matters were only briefly discussed, but others were given more time and detail. Now, what always mattered more than gory battle accounts and precise chronology were the God principles that were being elucidated and taught. This unorthodox method that we find in the Hebrew Bible of just briefly and matter-of-factly recording wars and dynasties and and the accomplishments of kings and potentates was, was totally unlike that of Israel's neighbors who tended to glorify, even deify human leaders and to eulogize military victories and expansive sagas of heroism and bravery and and warfare, warfare skill, strategy. And while only a precious few Hebrews in that era recognized the sure and steady hand of the God of Israel in the events that guided and described Israel's progress, and fewer still comprehended that deeper spiritual element of God's pronouncements and His predetermined unfolding of redemptive history. We worshipers of Jehovah of the 21st century, we have the benefit of hindsight and of the coming of Messiah Yeshua to aid us in recognizing all this. This advantage of hindsight gives us a a more complete and comprehensive view of this amazing divine path and the the many milestones that marked the way and, and how they all interconnected to bring us to these, the latter days, as we near the finish line of God's redemptive process. Thus, after the first six chapters of 2 Samuel that used a great deal of of dialogue among biblical characters to chronicle and explain David's rise to the throne upon Saul's death. Chapter 7 paused to impart the reason that Jehovah was doing what he was doing, especially as it concerned making David great in the eyes of his people and feared and admired by the surrounding nations. But chapter 7 also was future-oriented. It was prophetic. God determined that this was the moment that he would just lift a corner of the veil 
ever so slightly that lay over his plan of redemption. And he would reveal it to David since the cornerstone of that plan would involve an unnamed and unknown descendant of the king. Neither David nor his subjects could have known what we know with a certainty. That mysterious descendant was Yeshua of Nazareth, God's Messiah. Now it's fitting that it was the issue of the temple. That is what the lesson of 2 Samuel chapter 7 was built around. Because the point for David in wanting to build a temple was how to ensure God's presence with him at all times. So while God was essentially responding to David's request by explaining he had no need, he had no want for a fancy earthly dwelling place and that his natural mode was to travel with his people, David was still thinking in terms of building a necessarily immobile stone and cedar wood edifice for the Lord. In fact, and I have little doubt that David did not get this point, God made it clear that even though He would allow a son of David to build a temple for Him, that God would not be dwelling there as a sort of a bird in a cage or a genie in a bottle. However, His name would dwell there. Thus, in retrospect, we can see all the parameters being laid out for a whole series of realities that would come a long time into the future from David's day. The most important parameters being that God dwells in heaven, not on earth. And that He cannot be housed in a building made by men. But rather, He will be constantly present among and within His people. In times far beyond David's time, God will make His presence available not only to to priests and royalty, but to all people who trust in Him. And they will not have to go to a specific place to visit Him and worship Him, but He will travel with them wherever they go, be with them wherever they are. I'm not sure a modern day believer can comprehend what a radical notion that was. What the Israelites thought regarding where gods live and how gods interact with the nations in their charge was generally the same thoughts that their idol-worshipping neighbors harbored. Whatever David pictured as how God accomplished his plan to always be present with his people on earth is certainly not what we now know to be the the case. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will house myself in them. I will walk among you. I will be their God. They will be my people. Thus we see that just as the Lord said, 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he has determined to be in a tabernacle, a portable dwelling place, so that he can travel with his people. Now, while the New Testament commonly refers to us, God's worshipers, as his temples, that's really just a reflection of the common speech of the times. More correctly, we're not God's temples. We're His tabernacles. Not only that, but because the Lord will house Himself in His people, no separation from Him can occur. In other words, if the Lord permitted Himself to be housed inside a temple building, then He was by definition separated from His people, lest they journey to that temple. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor other heavenly rulers neither what exists nor what is coming. Neither powers above nor powers below not any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. David didn't comprehend all this. He didn't comprehend how it could be that this descendant of his would rule over God's people ad olam forever. Because in its simplest sense, this meant that his mysterious descendant would live forever. But David did understand that what God was proposing was beyond anything that a man could imagine or bring about. And David believed God. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, that's all the Lord asks of us. He asks us to believe Him. He asks us to trust Him even though we are not equipped to grasp all the depth of His promises, we're not equipped to understand how it's possible for them to come about or precisely even when they'll all be manifested. But that's the essence of walking by faith and not by sight. Let's move on to chapter 8 where the form and nature of what is being written makes a very dramatic shift. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 342. Sometime afterwards, David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. David took Metegamah out of the hands of the Philistine. He also defeated Moab, making them lie down on the ground, he measured them with a length of cord. For every two lengths to be put to death, he designated one to be kept alive. The people of Moab became subjects of David and paid tribute. David, on his way to establish his dominion as far as the Euphrates River, also defeated Hadadezers, the son of Rechov, king of Sofa. David captured 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. He reserved enough horses for 100 chariots, and he disabled the rest. When people of 
Aram from Damasek came to the aid of Hadezer, king of Zovah. David killed 22,000 men of Aram. Then David put garrisons among the people of Aram and Damasek, Damascus. Aram became subject to David and paid tribute. Adonai gave victory to David wherever he went. David took the gold shields which Hadad Ezer's servants were wearing and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betach and Berotai, cities of Hadad Ezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamat, heard that David had defeated Hadezer's entire army, Toi sent Yoram his son to King David to greet and congratulate him on fighting and defeating Hadadezer. For Hadadezer had been at war had been at war with Toi. Yoram brought with him articles of silver and articles of gold and articles of bronze, which King David dedicated to Adonai along with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he conquered. Aram, Moab, the people of Ammon, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil taken from Hadad Ezer, son of Rehov, king of Sovah. David gained more fame on returning from killing 18,000 men from Aram in the Salt Valley. David stationed garrisons in Edom. He put garrisons throughout all of Edom, and all the people of Edom became subject to him. Adonai gave victory to David wherever he went. David ruled over all Israel. David administered law and justice for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was commander of the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Achilud, was chief advisor. Sadok, the son of Achetuv, and Ahimelech, the son of Aviatar, were Kohanim, priests. Sraya was secretary. Ben Yao, the son of Yada, were in charge of the Kriti and the Politi, serving as the king's bodyguards. And David's sons were priests. The record of God's promises to establish his forever kingdom through David's lineage in chapter 7 is now followed by an account of the wars that David fought to expand and establish the earthly boundaries of that kingdom. Now we need to note that this chapter is not in strict chronological order with the other chapters of 2 Samuel nor are the events depicted in this chapter in perfect order, since that's not the point. The idea was to produce a summary, a kind of brief catalog of military victories under David. The opening phrase of verse 1, sometime afterward, probably ought to be considered as referring to a time not too long after chapter 6. Uh, which tells of the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David. Now, not surprisingly, the first war listed was with the Philistines, who had for scores of years tried to lord over Canaan in order to protect their all-important trade routes that crisscrossed that region and uh, connected to their seaports on the Mediterranean. And we're told that Meteg Amah, 
was taken out of the hands of the Philistines. This problematic phrase appears differently in practically every Bible version. Um, Because some of that is because of a failure by Bible scholars to connect this to the parallel account as recorded in 1 Chronicles 18. 1 Chronicles 18.1, which is speaking of the same thing, says this, Sometime afterwards, David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. David took Gath and its villages out of the hands of the Philistines. Metag Amah can literally be translated as the bridle of the mother. Strange phrase. But this is a figure of speech that's still common in the Middle East today. Who can forget Saddam Hussein promising America the mother of all wars if our armed forces were to attack them? In Middle Eastern thought, the mother is often seen as the chief or the originator of something. Thus, in Philistia, the city of Gath was seen as the chief city, the mother city. And the other four cities that formed the Pentapolis of the Philistines as the daughter cities. The bridle controls the beast. And so whomever's hand the bridle rests has power over the beast. Think about that as you read Revelation. Gath was the most powerful of the five Philistine uh, cities, a sort of capital city, even though the five cities were generally independent of one another. And so the Lord, or King of Gath, held sway over the other four. What's being explained here in very typical Oriental fashion is that Gath and its king, who interestingly was still Achish, who had harbored David from the murderous King Saul, was captured by David. And by capturing Gath, the mother city of the Pentapolis, the Philistines were greatly weakened and their influence over the region was effectively neutered. So while Mateg Amah is referring to Gath, it's no more an official or alternate formal name for Gath than the Big Apple is an official or alternate formal name for New York City. But it is indicative of that city's importance and status and it acknowledges that it is that nation's overall power center. That's the point. The next victory is briefly described in verse 2 and it's over the Moabites. Now it's surprising that David ordered such harsh treatment of the Moabite population so that apparently two-thirds of the troops of of Moab were executed. The passage says that David used a length of cord to measure the people. Actually, it was the troops of Moab and for every two lengths he killed two soldiers and for every one length he allowed that soldier to live. Now there is no other record of any conquering nation that used such a strange method to determine who lived and who died among that enemy. Therefore I highly suspect that this is a 
a long lost figure of speech that wasn't and there wasn't actually a measuring ceremony rather there was i'm sure some some summary means of of lining up these combatants these defeated combatants and killing two out of three and it was as if someone used a cord to measure out those who would die but what surprises me more than this mass execution is that it involved Moab. Moab had been to, had been a friend of sorts to David and his family in years past. The king of Moab agreed to let David's parents and family live there, protected, while David was on the run from King Saul. Even more, David's famous ancestor Ruth was from Moab. So there was an ancient family connection. Although it's not recorded, it must have been that Moab seriously offended David and the repercussions were very severe. Or David concluded that unless Moab was greatly weakened, they would not be controllable. And the most expedient way to weaken a nation has always been to diminish its military. Verse 3 explains that part of David's aim was to extend Israel's dominion to the Euphrates River. No doubt this was seen in David's eyes as a given since it was promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, Genesis 15:18, that day Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Thus David led an expeditionary force to the north and to the east and so confronted the nations of that region who had no intention becoming part of a greater Israel if they could help it. A fellow named Hadad Azer was the general of the army from the nation of Sova, a, a, a nation located near Damascus. Hadad was the name of the supreme sun god of that culture. And so that fellow's name meant Hadad is my help. This army of Hadad had many horses and chariots. They were all captured by David's forces. But David, who was aware of God's instructions from Deuteronomy 17, kept only sufficient horses to operate 100 chariot teams. And he hobbled the the remainder of them. Deuteronomy 17, verses 15 and 16. In that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai your God will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, this king you appoint over you. You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not a kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself. Or have the people returned to Egypt to obtain more horses, inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back that way again. Aram and Zovah, which were up in this area, were part of a large coalition that included the nation of Ammon. And apparently they acted to help one another when attacked. So next we read that some 
Arameans, Arameans, came to the aid of Hadad, and they too were slaughtered by David's army. Now here we see the time when the area around Damascus came under Israel's influence and control as David didn't merely conquer them he left substantial garrisons of troops to secure the region thus from here forward we're going to see a connection between Syria usually called Damascus and Israel and this continues all throughout biblical times much of the time as friends other times as enemies A substantial Jewish community even sprang up there. And that's why we find the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus to try to expose or or arrest some Jesus sympathizers. Verse 7 through 12 explains that David confiscated gold and bronze from the conquered peoples. He took it all back to Jerusalem, no doubt to be stored away for later used to construct the temple and its furnishings and ritual implements. Then we find out that he also attacked another army, killing 18,000 of its troops. And this gained David an even greater level of fame than he was already enjoying. Verse 13 speaks of his battle with Aram in the Salt Valley. Aram is a copyist error. The Valley of Salt was in Edom, not Aram. This, of course, comports with the next verse that states that David garrisoned troops in Edom and that all of Edom became subject to King David. But it also now shifts the scene from the north to the south and it records how David expanded Israel towards the southwest as well as to the Northeast, or rather the southeast as well as to the northeast. And then the key to all of David's successes ends verse 14. Adonai, or actually it says Yehoveh, gave victory to David wherever he went. The phrase wherever he went brings us now full circle back to the point of the previous chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is, God travels with His people. He's not left behind in a golden box. He is present with David, wherever David is. And this is at God's doing, not David's. A temple is not needed. And in fact, no ritual article of furniture is needed for Jehovah's presence. Further, God's not limited by national boundaries. All people of all known cultures in that era believed as unassailable fact that their God's sphere of authority went no further than their own national boundaries, but they could transport that God with them to foreign conflicts and hopefully that God could do them some good such as intimidating the enemy verse 15 explains a couple of important premises about David's reign first is 
that he ruled over all Israel. The term all Israel is one we've discussed on a number of occasions because except for brief periods of time, Israel was always divided into two main camps, Judah and Israel. Or as it was called a few years after King Solomon's death, Judah and Ephraim. So while on the surface the term all Israel might seem superfluous to the average Bible student, in fact, it's a critical piece of information that the ancient Hebrews would instantly have grabbed hold of. This had not been so since the days of Joshua. Sadly, although David's son Solomon would inherit this arrangement and even improve upon it, within a matter of three to four years after Solomon's death, Israel would fall into civil war and dissolve right back into its age-old tribal coalitions that primarily consisted of ten to the north, Ephraim, two to the south, Judah. The second piece of information in verse 15 is that David ruled in what the complete Jewish Bible and a few other versions translate as law and justice. This is a poor translation. The original Hebrew is mishpat zedekah and it ought to be translated as justice and righteousness or probably, most literally, righteous judgment. Here's the appearance of a pattern that was called for in the Torah. And we're going to encounter several places in David's story where the narrator will point out an action of David that is actually a Torah command, or it's a Torah pattern. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. You are to appoint judges and officers for all your gates in the cities. Adonai your God is giving you, tribe by tribe. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to distort justice or show favoritism. You are not to accept a bribe, for a gift blinds the eyes of the wise. It twists the words of even the upright. Justice, only justice you must pursue so that you will live and inherit the land Adonai your God is giving to you. Here in Deuteronomy, we see that phrase, righteous judgment, mishpat sedek. And it is in the form of a commandment that Israel's civil authorities are to rule by adhering to this underlying premise. Deuteronomy 18, that I, or rather 16, that I just read to you, go so far as to define righteous judgment by saying that there is to be no favoritism, no distortion of justice, and no accepting a bribe to predetermine an outcome. And this is what is being ascribed to David's rule. Notice also the final words of verse 15 that says David applied this mishpat Sedek to all the people. 
This is referring not to social economic classes, but rather to this ongoing reality that David did not show partiality to his own tribal coalition of Judah over Saul's old tribal coalition of the northern tribes. That's the point. The chapter ends by listing David's senior cabinet members. Joab, Yoaf, who had several years earlier murdered Abner, the supreme military commander of the northern tribal coalition, and thus he seemed on the verge of being tossed aside by David. Apparently he survived. He's even cemented his position as David's right-hand man and general of the military. A fellow named Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, is sometimes called David's chief advisor, but that's misleading. He was David's zakar, his recorder, maybe his scribe. He was charged with recording the official history of David's administration, including battle details, pacts and treaties with other nations, family genealogy, and to a degree he was David's royal biographer. Now verse 17 throws out a tantalizing tidbit that is easy to overlook as it does so with no fanfare. It is that Zadok became a chief priest or better high priest and that he shared that duty with Abiathar. That's right, David had two high priests. This was purely a political accommodation that set aside the law of God on the matter. Abiathar was seen as the legitimate high priest by the northern tribes, but he wasn't seen so by the southern tribes. So David appointed Sadok, which satisfied the people of Judah. Now in reality, Abiathar was not a God-authorized high priest. This is because he came from the line of Ithamar. The high priest was supposed to come from the line of Eleazar. But since the time of Eli, Samuel's mentor, the high priest had come from the line of Ithamar, and thus this was the line of high priests that existed under King Saul. Zadok, on the other hand, came from the proper God-ordained line of Eleazar. After Solomon took over from his father, he he deposed Abiathar, and so Israel then finally had only one high priest, the other, the, the one from the correct lineage, Zadok. Well, the final verse of this chapter is a bit cryptic. It's a little bit difficult to understand what it's trying to communicate. First, a man named Benyao is said to have charge over the Kriti and the Politi. Some ancient manuscripts add, and we have that in our complete Jewish Bibles, that these were David's bodyguards. Now assuming this is correct, then what we have here are two groups of foreigners who were hired as mercenaries to be used to protect David at his palace. A personal bodyguard was typical 
for all kings. And it was also typical to use foreign mercenaries rather than the local nationality. The reason was that foreigners had no real axe to grind about who was king. They just worked for money. But there were always disagreements and jealousies among the local tribes and clans who felt that perhaps one of their own had the right to power. So to use guards taken from among them would have presented more of an opportunity for a coup attempt. But we also see that essentially David divided the duty of the civilian police force, David's bodyguard, from the military. Okay? And he put them under separate commanders. In a later chapter, we're going to find out that this Ben Yao will eventually supplant Joab as Israel's military commander. King Solomon's going to make this change. Now, the second piece of difficult information is that it seems to say that David's sons were given the job of priests. Now, considering that David saw it as no problem to appoint two high priests, one has to wonder if he felt free to assign as common priests anybody he chose. Some rabbis say that here the Hebrew word kohanim does not mean priests, but rather it means ministers or rulers, which frankly has no comparable use in the remainder of the Bible. And I doubt that this is correct. Other rabbis admit that we need to take this at face value and accept that for some reason, David thought he ought to make his sons priests. Now I've said it in earlier lessons and I'm sure I'm going to say it again numerous times. Israel was woefully ignorant of the law of Moses and generally merely followed man-made customs and traditions and did what seemed right in their own eyes. That David would think that he could choose not only to maintain two high priests, but to appoint his own sons as priests who were obviously Judahites and not Levites, is just another indication of the willful ignorance of Torah that sent Israel into a, a long death spiral ending in disgrace and exile from their land inheritance. Well, with that particular thought in mind, let's exit chapter 8 and move on to chapter 9. But before we do, and this is which will happen next week, I'd like to set the stage by making a, a paraphrase and adding a, a bit to a comment made by the marvelous Jewish Christian scholar and, and writer of the 19th century, Alfred Edersheim in his wonderful work entitled Bible History of the Old Testament. He makes a general observance about biblical characters, most of them referred to as Bible heroes, that we need to keep in mind, especially as we study David and Solomon. It is this. There is a common, if not alarming, peculiarity about even the most prominent and highly praised Bible personalities. And it presents us 
with a, with a rather humbling personal lesson if only we'll pay attention and allow it to sink deeply into our hearts. As we watch these especially revered characters appear in the holy text, and then as we see them progress, they, they seem at times to be far beyond our reach in their purity of thoughts and actions. It seems as though perhaps those evil inclinations and our propensity to give in to temptations and impulses that derails us, mere mortals, and at times sends us spiraling off into guilt and defeat, that these things didn't even seem to exist in them at all. And I say this is patently unfair. It's almost as though their awesome life of walking in faith and courage is no example for us at all because they are so near perfect in their selfless devotion to God and to His will. I mean, we can't even envision ourselves ever approaching such a thing. But then, suddenly, without warning, Almost to the last man or woman, these Bible heroes fall. A dark shadow passes upon them that ironically illuminates a hidden side of their character that we didn't see coming. One that seems incongruous with what we have otherwise seen them accomplish. On the one hand... This demonstrates to us the terrible, often unseemly, struggles that actually went on inside of these great Bible heroes, even as they went about doing the divine task assigned to them by the Lord. And on the other hand, we are witnesses to how God's divine grace alone had given them the victory over all those dark inner struggles many of which we can easily imagine, but were not necessarily detailed or even written down. What is even more alarming is that often we'll find these great heroes of faith succumbing to this dark shadow of flawed character just as they reached the spiritual climax of their lives. After they've accomplished the greatest feats. After they've witnessed divine miracles, experienced deliveries in ways that have become legendary and are recounted countless times in sermons and in Sunday school. After they have seemingly won out against fear and rebellion and they are at the pinnacle of faith, that's when their decline begins. We saw this dilemma appear with Aaron, with Moses. We watched Abraham turn his own wife over to Pharaoh. We've already had some glimpses of it, and we're going to soon witness it at a much greater level with David, and then later still with Elijah. What we need to take from this is that God didn't pit great men and women to do His work on earth. God picked ordinary men and women 
to use for great things that He would do. The same flaws that we all fight, these admirable Bible characters had. We need not be intimidated by these Bible heroes, nor ought we put them on a pedestal as untouchable. They merely did the one thing that many of us have not. They said yes when the Lord called, not knowing what that yes might entail or lead to because that is invariably the condition for serving Him. But for those who have answered the Lord's call and have participated in things of merit for the kingdom, that others stand back and admire or or, or pray that maybe they would also be called to do, be forewarned, being at the pinnacle of faith and accomplishment often means that the fall to the valley floor below is longer and more jarring when you arrive there. So if we have answered the call and we have been led to great victories, we not only have to carefully maintain our humility before God, but we also need to maintain ourselves in His kindness in the same way as when we first ascended to that mountaintop by trusting in His sufficiency and not on our own knowledge or abilities. By recognizing that we are all humans and that failures and defeats will be part of our lives. And all the more so if we think that we have finally reached some point of nearness to God as to make us immune. And in the coming chapters, as we watch David succumb to his own humanness and to his own agendas, often woven together with God's agenda for cover, we need to do so with understanding and sorrow as opposed to surprise and condemnation. After all, every single one of the greatest Bible heroes were mere humans as much in need of God's constant favor and grace and forgiveness as we all are. Mm 